1 Corinthians 16, we'll pick up the first four verses. And I want to take just a moment to again remind you that here in Calvary Chapel, we teach the entirety of God's Word, chapter and verse, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. Uh, We cover every single verse, every word. And so the only time that we talk about giving is when giving is talked about in Scripture. One of the knocks on the church is the church exists basically to fleece the pockets of people who come to church. Let me be the first to tell you, if you're here tonight and you do not know the Lord or you're visiting, uh, we would actually prefer that you do not give to this ministry. We would rather that you receive the Lord and then decide what the Lord wants you to do with your tithes and offerings and you come and feel like you're being propelled into a state of giving. The Lord desires for us to be givers, not because he needs our money, but because it is an act of worship. It is something that we do because he loves us. And for those of us who know him, it's not my tithe that belongs to the Lord. It's everything I am and everything I have stewardship over belongs to him. And so my giving is an act of worship to the Lord. So as we look tonight at a subject that's touchy for some, I pray it won't be touchy for anyone tonight. Maybe you have a view of giving that is unbiblical. Maybe you've never actually heard a message taught uh, from a passage like this. But it's very clear to me, for those of us who love the Lord and are still here on this earth awaiting the rapture of the church, a time that will follow that where we won't be here, the tribulation of the last days, the second coming of the Lord, that we ought to be really busy about our Father's business. Amen? We can't be busy about our Father's business without having some resources with which to do that business because there is business we have to do in this world. There is a falsehood also that floats around that the church, while being exempt from paying taxes on capital gains, pays no taxes. This church paid in payroll taxes and associated taxes last year the better portion of a million dollars to the very various portions of the government, state, local, federal taxes in the form of payroll, payroll-related taxes. So don't be deceived. The church functions in the world much like every business functions in the world, and it requires that we do things with excellence that we pay our bills on time. So one of the things that happens when we give is that we take care of the local church. The next thing that happens is we take care of the church in the whole rest of the world. We're responsible for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the globe for those that are in need. And that actually is the context of the first four verses here in 1 Corinthians 16. And so would you join me as we pray and we'll ask God to speak to us uh, through his word and specifically in the area of our giving. Father, we thank you. Lord, would you bless us tonight where we do consider it an act of worship to return to you a portion of that which you've entrusted to us. And so God, with gladness and with joyfulness, cheerfulness, as the Apostle Paul will write in his second letter, 
Lord, we return to you those things which are yours. We thank you for your gifts that were given tonight, and we pray that you bless them and increase them for your kingdom. But most importantly tonight, God, would you bless us with your presence by your spirit in this place, in Jesus' name, amen. As we begin this passage, anybody in here think that you're not going to die? Well, there's a possibility we might be raptured. That, that'd be the only way you're going to escape. But the bottom line is we have a shelf life, amen? We have a life expectancy. And the strange thing happens as you get older, you get closer to the end and it becomes very real to you. Uh, I've gone through a period of time in the last several months of burying people much younger than myself who've died from natural causes. And I'm thinking, man, I'm old. One day I'm going to heaven. Jesus said, where you store your treasure, there your heart will be also. He reminded us to store up our treasure in heaven. Because it's only there that moths cannot get to it. Depreciation cannot happen. Loss of equity will never occur. A poor return on investment will not happen to you to those things which have been stored up for eternal purposes. And so tonight, as we look at this passage of Scripture, as Peter reminds us, we ought to be knowing these things. There in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says to us, since we look towards these things, Be diligent to be found at peace, spotless and blameless in the things of the Lord. In other words, we have a responsibility in the here and now to live our lives with eternal purpose. No place does that touch us in such a materialistic culture than in our possessions. You can get people to give of their time fairly easily. You can get people to give of their mental ability fairly easily, their gifts fairly easily. But when you begin to talk about money, people go, you know, they start covering their pockets, grabbing their wallets, hiding their ATM cards, or now they hide their cell phone because you can do it with Apple Pay. If we truly believe brothers and sisters, that we could leave this earth at any moment and then live eternally with God, then just exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 6 is a command to us. Lay up treasures in heaven while you're still here on earth. Because it's what you do for heaven that lasts. It's not what you do for yourself. It is not what you do for the earth that matters. I am one of those people, I love creation. I am actually sickened by the way mankind has stewarded the creation. But we could save the earth and not save men's souls. So we need to be storing up treasure that benefits the salvation of men's souls in the kingdom of God. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 16. Now, concerning... The collection for the saints. Now I want to put that in perspective for you. The collection for the saints was the church in Jerusalem. 
The church was distinctively and decidedly Jewish at that point in time. A vast majority of the church were people who converted from Judaism to Christianity. But the church in Jerusalem was the most persecuted place on the face of the earth to be a believer. And so the church in Jerusalem, though it was really the mother church, it'd be like we who were at Calvary Chapel seeing a need in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and hardening our hearts towards it. When Pastor Chuck founded Calvary Chapel, when we got birthed out of that movement, when this incredible thing that happened uh, over the last 40 plus years happened, And these 1,800 churches that have been birthed worldwide out of one man's vision, it would be a travesty to see that work that's the root die. And so Paul sees this. Remember, he's Jewish. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. They did their work in Jerusalem. He was at the stoning of Stephen. He had a deep connection to the first century church in Jerusalem. It says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches in Galatia, so this is in, in the area that actually encompasses all the way from southern Europe, all the way back to Italy, the churches of Galatia, so you must also do. And so he says he's talking about a church that has need. There are other people around the world a long ways away that are actually collecting money to benefit some other part of the body of Christ. That's the picture. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. You see, the last thing in the world you want to do is every time there's a need in the church, run around the church trying to collect money to see if you can meet it. It's the reason that we function very much as a mid-sized corporation, as a church. Here in this church, we have a board of trustees, which are also elders and pastors in the church. Those seven men guide and direct the finances of the church. We produce financials. We have a staff CPA. We have a staff attorney. We have a staff CEO. We have a staff CFO. We have four people whose full-time job it is to make sure that every single cent that's given to this ministry is stewarded well so that we can meet the most needs we possibly can beginning right here in our own church. The Apostle Paul is actually laying this out. He's saying, look, there's a need, and we don't want to have to run around and try and find a way to meet that need when the need happens. We want to be pre-prepared to meet that need. And so he lays out a principle, and we're going to look at the principles that are laid out here and elsewhere in Scripture as we go through the, the evening. He says on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday. He doesn't say when we feel like it. He doesn't say when we get paid. He doesn't say if you have excess. He just simply says, because there are going to be needs in the body of Christ, just as I've instructed churches all over southern Europe to do for the church in Jerusalem, set aside something on the first day of the week and let each one of you do it. Let each one of you lay something aside. So he's not saying 
as is the case, unfortunately, in most of Christendom, that about 10% of all believers do most of the giving. He's saying every believer ought to be engaged in taking care of the needs of the church and of the greater needs of the body of Christ. Storing up as he may prosper, so that no collections are made when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. In other words, this was not some willy-nilly thing to where they just, you know, here, you know, here's some money, just go do whatever you want. There were processes, there were procedures, and there were people that were engaged in the active collection and the active distribution of those funds which are collected. I want you to also notice something. The Apostle Paul has no idea who is giving what, and he does not care. And in this church, I have no idea who gives what, and I do not care. I don't know. You know, sometimes people will kind of put me in an odd spot, and they'll say, well, I'm the one that gave that check last week, and I'm saying, God bless you, thank you, and I have no idea what they're talking about. I have no idea. I do not know who gives. I'm completely blind, and here's the reason why. I want to play no favorites. So if you're one of those people that God's blessed you and you're very generous, I don't want you to think that I'm going to treat you differently than somebody who has widow's mites to give. I want to give the same counsel, the same word, the same respect, the same love, the same care to every last person in the body of Christ. So I do not want to know, and I will never know. Secondarily, in case you're wondering, I don't set my own salary. I have nothing to do with it. I make the salary that the board approves for me, and whatever it is, that's what I get. I don't ask. And in fact, I accepted the position to come as a pastor of this church without knowing what I was going to get paid. I didn't ask. And the reason I'm telling you that is not to put any emphasis on me, but to tell you that we truly believe that God's word is accurate, it is true, and if God is guiding, God will also be providing. And so we put the Lord first, the money is secondary. then we can do whatever God tells us to do. But if we purpose in our hearts to set up a system that benefits man and not God, then we will mess up what God's plans are. But if it is fitting that I also go, they will go with me. In other words, I'm not going to do this by myself. I don't want anybody to think that I have any control over this. There will be witnesses to what is done with this money. I won't handle it myself. Extreme poverty was very common during biblical times, and as extreme poverty occurred, resources were continually strained. They were especially strained in Jerusalem, and here's why. Jerusalem is the capital of Judaism, so especially on the feast days, every resource was taxed to the maximum. So now you have a Christian church in a Jewish environment, and so you can imagine who got the leftovers. It was the Christian church. As a matter of fact, there could at times in Jerusalem, the population could swell to as much in the general area as a couple of million people, especially during Passover, even during biblical times. 
And so there was always needs that needed to be met. In that sense, you could almost look at it, there were tough times in Jerusalem. Again, some of you don't know, and so I will let you know. Uh, We have missionaries, people that we support every single month in the Philippines, Uganda, Liberia, Sudan, El Salvador, Guatemala, Nicaragua, Belize, China, Mexico, Peru, Venezuela, Ecuador, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. Amen? I'm telling you so that you know that the collection that we take is exactly what is said here. It's for the saints. It does not all stay here. We take very seriously our obligation to the greater body of Christ where times are tough. And we do that faithfully and regularly. And that's not including the parachurch ministries that we support, like Institute for Creation Research, the Family Research Council, Wall Builders, and all of those other organizations that we support. But we take very seriously the collection, not just for here, this is important, because here's where it's collected, but for the saints. And in our case, the saints all over the world. And so Paul's reminding us, look, do this. There, in essence, is a purpose for our giving. And the association between your personal finances and the financial needs of the rest of the body of Christ are a purpose of fellowship. I can tell you because I get the blessed opportunity to go to some of these places where we have impacted churches and ministries all over the world and there is a very intense love for this fellowship for you because of your faithfulness. Because of what you are doing in the world. Because of the gifts that you give that directly benefit these churches that would not otherwise exist. There are more than 50 churches in Latin America alone that you are solely responsible for their existence financially. More than 50. And I don't say that to inflate this ministry or you, but to say, that's what God wants us to do. And that's what we are doing. That's the purpose. We have to invest in the kingdom. We have to. We must. A stingy church is a fruitless church. Can I tell you that? A church that doesn't recognize the blessedness of taking what God has blessed us with and sharing it will be a church that doesn't understand the blessedness of being fruitful. Oh, sure, we can take care of our own needs. And in case you haven't looked around the church, we take care of our own needs pretty well, don't we? Wander around the church a little bit. By the way, just give you a little heads up. You can pray about it. We're getting ready to paint the whole church. We're not going to be the white elephant on the corner anymore. 
Pray for us in the, collect, in the, in the selection of the color scheme, though. Because as you might imagine, we have thousands upon thousands of suggestions. And no, we're not doing chartreuse and green. So we want to take care of what God's given us here. We want to do that well, because when people come through the doors, we want them to know God is good. Amen? The reason we have laser screens is not so we can show off. It's so we can tell people God is good, and so you can see, and you can look at notes, and you can be blessed. That's all good stuff. That's all necessary things. The reason we have sound system. I could stand up here and probably take this microphone off, and I'm a loudmouth. I could probably talk to most of you. But I'd last about one service, and then I need to go have throat surgery. So we have a sound system. For those of you that have traveled around the world, are we blessed to have air conditioning or what? I have taught in places where it's been 120, 125 inside of the church. Now, I don't know how dedicated you are to church, but I'm telling you, if it's 125 here in SoCal, there ain't nobody coming to church. They're all watching online. See, it it gets over, it was so hot, it was 71. So we're blessed. We want to take care of the home. But we want to take care of those places that don't even have a roof over their head, too. And so the Lord has given us an economic obligation, if you will, to look at the greater kingdom and say, Lord, what can we do to help? Paul goes on and really, in a a very concise way, he actually gives us some principles here uh, about our giving. And they're quite simple. Notice the first thing, on the first day of the week, there is a time to give. There's a time to give. And I don't believe it's an accident the Apostle Paul says this. Because giving's not an obligation. On the first day of the week, guess where they were? They were in church. Guess what they were doing? Worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The Holy One. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were in a church service. So on the first day of the week, first day of the week part of their giving was part of their worship service. It's like, Lord, we get to bless these other people around the world. We get to take care of the needs that are here. I think you all saw, and I did not plan this, by the way. We have a food pantry. When people come in and they're in need, we do not send them away hungry. We feed them. We feed 100% of the people who come into the office If they need food, they leave here with food. Now, sometimes we collect enough food from donations, and sometimes we do what everybody else does. We go to Costco, and we buy the bulk packs of everything, and we give it away. Why? Because he has freely given to us, we have freely received, and we need to freely give. That's part of our obligation in worship. And so on Sunday, when the church got together, they would do just exactly what we did. They took a a blind offering. We happen to use bags. Some use plates. We have boxes. The point is, nobody knows what the right hand's giving. The left hand doesn't even know. We just give. But we do it regularly. And we do it sensitively. 
And we do it preparedly in that one place, which is the church. And there's a reason for that. Because the church knows to do with those things. I can tell you who not to give your tithes and offerings to. The government. Amen? In Jesus' name, don't do that. You see, during Old Testament times... The children of Israel lived under a theocracy. It was a government of God. And so if you go through the Old Testament, you're going to find out that they were encouraged to give a whole bunch of money. And in two cases, in the book of Leviticus, it totals up to over 25%. Why? Because they didn't have Social Security. They didn't have welfare. They didn't have roads. They didn't have bridges. They didn't have an army. They didn't have anything. And so they gave to the church for the purpose of supporting a lot of other things. But that's not our world. Our country is certainly not a theocracy. But we still have a lot of needs to take care of. And so the Lord says on the first day of the week, give. Give regularly, willingly, gratefully, out of a commitment that God has been good to us. Let's be good to every other person on this planet that we can possibly reach so that they will know the Lord. There are also people who should give. This is kind of a duh moment for all of us. What does it say? Let each one of you. Not some of you. Not those of you that are rich. Not those of you who are really spiritual. Not those of you who are divided up into class along you know, certain economic lines or racial lines or anything else. Let each one of you give. Why do you suppose it says that? Because each one of us has an obligation before the Lord, and each one of us is to worship the Lord. And so it isn't one of those things that some people should give so that everybody else can be blessed. God wants you to give so you can be blessed. God wants me to give so I can be blessed. And my family tithes. We believe wholeheartedly. We've taught our children since they were this tall. You give God part of your allowance. You give God part of your snowboarding money. You give God part of everything you have because he gave you everything. All of you. I can tell you what happens. You can't outgive God. I'm simply a steward of what God's given to me. The money in our bank accounts, our home, our cars, none of it actually belongs to us. If you come and ask me who owns that, I'll just tell you God. That's true, our names are on the deed to our home and they're on the pink slips to our car and all those kind of things. It's all God's. I can prove that to you. Because you ain't taking none of it with you. He's having it all stay here because it's temporal, it's earthly, it belongs here. It all belongs to him. Scripture says, the sheep, the cattle on a thousand hills, the gold and silver in every mine, the earth and the fullness thereof is the Lord's. So he's already owns all of it. He's just asking you to acknowledge that in worship. And there's no country on this earth where he's been better to the church than America. No place. There's a place to give. And that place is church. It's not a hard thing to understand. 
If you're, if you're going to give and we're going to use it for God's purposes, who's going to know that better than God's people? Amen? And so giving is done in the church. Now, I want to be really careful here because that does not mean that the only place you can give is in the church. It means the primary place that you should give is to your own local assembly of believers so that the church that you're a part of where you worship and the church where you are actively a serving member of that church you actually are contributing to what the church is doing so you can say, that's us. It's an honor to give towards the things that God's doing. You know, when we have missionaries and people come that we support from all over the world and they come here and they wander around this facility, can I tell you they're a little bit blown away? Because most of them, if they have a building, it's one. Most of them, if they have a place to meet, it's in plastic chairs that you would probably throw away if you had them. None of them have air conditioning. Few of them have sound systems. Most of them live day to day, not paycheck to paycheck. There's a place. Because it's in this place, in God's house, that the treasury or the repository of those monies actually makes some sense. Because we actually know what to do with it. I had a gentleman that came into the church a couple of months ago, and he was, he was the typical person who doesn't have a clue what he's talking about, and decided that he wanted to see our books. And I said, well, do you have a vested interest in this corporation? And he looked at me like, what do you mean? I said, are you a believer? He said, a believer in what? I said, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, no. I just want to see your books. And I said, well, you can't. And he said, well, what do you mean I can't? I said, I'm not to expose the temple treasures to a heathen. He didn't like that answer. And I said, why would I want to show you what God is doing in this church? Well, I have a right to know. I said, no, you don't. I said, what you have a right to know is the Lord Jesus Christ. And once you know him and begin to grow here, then we can talk about you seeing the book. So just in case you want to know, if you're here and you regularly give to this church, you can see the church's financials anytime you want to see them. They are an open book. And so but they're open to the body of Christ because you're giving to this ministry. You have a right to know what happens. And so we produce very accurate, extremely detailed financials every single month. Furthermore, the books in this church are audited by an offsite accounting firm, Ronald Blue and Associates, and they do an annual audit on every single penny that we spend so that there is no question about what happens to God's money. It's important that we do that right, and there's no better place than letting God's leaders handle God's people's God-given money. We don't want the government doing that. Because the government's proven they can spend about 87 cents on every dollar that they take in on themselves. That's not an exaggeration, by the way. That's the current average. The U.S. government spends about 87 cents out of every dollar on running itself. 
government processes. In other words, it doesn't come back to us. It actually is the function of the government, government agencies. It is the government itself and all the things that the government does that actually keeps most of that money. It does not come back to roads and bridges and food for the poor. It stays basically in the government itself. You see, what we want to do is we want to accomplish God's purposes. God's people know what God's purposes are. People without the Lord do not know what God's purposes are because they're not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So that money stays here. We watch over it. And by the way, we're not foolish with it either. We have CDs. We have investment accounts. We have savings accounts. We have checking accounts. We have emergency funds. All those things that you would expect a corporation who's thinking rightly about their funds to to have, we have. We have reserve funds. We have daily funds. We have funds set aside for every type of thing you can imagine. So when we go to paint the building, guess who we're going to borrow money from? Nobody. We're just going to write a check for it. Because the borrower is always slave to the lender. And so we just ask God, God, give us what you want us to have and we'll use it for your glory. That's why no pastor should live above the means of the sheep. That's why when I I read news articles of pastors running around in Ferraris, they're going to answer to God for that. They're going to answer to God for the private jets. They're going to answer to God for the mansions. That should not, because God's word says so, be in the life of any pastor, period. Period. Be temperate in all things. Do not be a lover of money. No pastor needs a private jet. I can fly like everybody else flies. Every once in a while, I get upgraded. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. The rest of the time, I eat my knees like you all do. My backside is squeezed into that space. It was meant for a child just like you. (laughs) There's a proportion to give. And I want to be really careful because Paul's exhortation here is obviously completely discretionary. But it's not without background information because you have to remember who he's talking to. He's talking to people who are primarily Jewish. He's talking to people who understood that the biblical tithe actually predates the Jewish people themselves. It goes all the way back to the beginnings of the book of Genesis with Melchizedek. And so what they knew was that God had actually spoken. Let's start with this thing called a, a tithe or a tenth. That's what Jacob said he'd promised to God. And as you go through the whole of the Old Testament, you're going to find out that it fluctuates, goes up and down, does all kinds of things that included taxes to take care of the church and many different things. But in biblical times, especially in the time of the disciples, the last word that God actually gave on this subject is found in Malachi chapter 3. And I actually want you to turn there. Malachi 3. So the very last book of the Old Testament, very small book, you can't miss it, go to Matthew, flip over a couple of pages, you're going to voila, there it will be. Biblical admonition there. 
The truth of the matter is God owns everything, the tithe of the land, everything is God's anyway. But from Matthew's gospel to the prophet Malachi, there were 400 years of silence. So this literally is the last thing said about this subject as far as proportion. Verse 8, Malachi chapter 3, will a man rob God? How have you robbed me? But you say, in what way have I robbed you? God's answer. In tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse. For you've robbed me, even this whole nation. And so now he kind of gives them a little bit of a, a, a way to understand this. He says, bring all the tithes. Tithe just simply means tenth. Into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I don't know when you hear the Lord give you something, and by the way, this is the only place in the entire Bible this is found, where God directly asks us to test his goodness. Test me in this. What's the test? If I will not open to you the windows of heaven... And pour out for you such a blessing that there will be not enough room to receive it. And I like the second part almost as much as I like the first part. And rebuke the devourer for your, state, for your sakes. If you're a basketball freak, if you're looking forward to March Madness, uh, Zion Williams' shoes would not have blown out. Rebuke the devourer of Nike tennis shoes for your sake. They'll last indefinitely. Basically, God's saying, if you want your stuff to last, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all of the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. That's the last word on proportion. The New Testament just simply says, do it with a cheerful heart. Be a cheerful giver, as the Lord purposes to you. But I think the Lord's really looking back and he's saying, look, if you can't trust me to make sure that 90% of what you have in your bank account is enough, then why would you trust me with 100 or 110% or any other amount? God's never changed. He's never countermanded this view. And I think the, the bigger thing here is what God actually does for us when we test him this way. And there's several things. Anybody in here actually want to be blessed financially? I can tell you how not to do that. Hoard all your stuff. If you want to be blessed by God, you can't be a hoarder of stuff. You need to be a giver of stuff a giver of money, a giver of whatever it is that you have, try and outgive God, your Bible says, see if you will not be blessed in doing so. So much so that you'll receive blessings that you can't contain them all. I will bear witness to you as God is my witness. That has been absolutely my experience before the Lord. There has never been a time of want in the Gill family. We have always had more than we need. God has truly proven this to be true. But we do not rob God. 
God actually gets his before we get ours. We give before we actually get in our house. Because I believe this is true. Giving can't come from pressure. It can't come from obligation. It can't even come because you're looking at this and you're like, oh man, there's a formula. I'll give and he'll give me. Yes! No, it's still voluntary. And it doesn't say anything about your wealth. So here's the test. It's really testing your worshipfulness. It's testing your volition to love God. It's asking you to actually test the character and nature of a God who's given you everything by giving some of it to the church so that God will turn around and say, you got it. You, you just simply cannot outgive God. It's not possible. The Old Testament just simply reminds us, look, God is able to make these things abound to you. If you give out of compulsion, it's not what God wants. God loves a cheerful giver. We'll see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Jesus actually said in Luke's gospel, he said, give and it will be given unto you. In good measure, shaken down together, running over, pouring into your lap. For by the standard that you give, that's how you're going to receive. I've done a lot of financial counseling in the last 30 years. And I can tell you with almost without exception that when there has been a serious lack in a believer's life, you will also find a serious lack in giving. So you can take it for what it's worth. The Bible's true. If you want to hang on to everything you have, then you can keep what you have and God won't add to it. If you want to test God, then you can test God and see if he isn't good and see if he won't give you more. And here's why. Because he knows you'll give it away. He knows you'll take what you have that he's entrusted to you and you'll give it away. So who do you think he's going to give more to? The person who hoards it up for their own new cars or the person who tries to give it away so that people in Africa can have food? I'm pretty sure it's the person that gives it away so that people in Africa can have food. So the church can grow. So that the word can go forth. So people can be saved. The person that joins God in what God's doing and gives to that end is the one that God's going to bless. Now, you may not like hearing that. It might be one of those things that rubs you the wrong way. How dare you talk about money, Pastor Jeff? Well, you're hearing me talking about it here in this chapter, and it'll happen again in the second book written to the Corinthians when we get towards the end of that one. And that's pretty much it in the entirety of the whole New Testament. So I want you to know what God's Word says about it. Because I don't want there to be any mistake God's actually asked you, take a test. Take the test. The benefits of our willing and cheerful giving produce both spiritual and material blessing. And I say that because I've taken the test. I'm telling you, I've taken the test. 
So I'm not sharing with you from just the biblical side of this, which I know is true because it's God's word, but I'm sharing with you from practical experience. I've watched it happen all over the world. I've watched pastor after pastor after pastor come to me with the exact same story. I had no idea how God was going to meet that need, but he did. I, I just had an experience. We were down in Colombia for a pastor's conference. Connie stayed in Bogota. We went down to Via Vincencio. We're touring a bunch of churches. I always take with me a gift, exactly as Paul says here, for the churches that are there. I usually just pray about it, and I'll tell Robin, give me this amount of cash, put it in an envelope. After taking care of the cost of the conference that we did, because we paid for it so that everybody could come for free from Columbia, every single person came for free. After we got done, I had an amount of money left in my pocket. We go and visit a church. They're doing a remodel. They're not able to meet. They've been closed down. They've been stopped from meeting in the building because they have to finish this project. So I'm praying with this pastor, Pastor Hiver. I've got my hand. His son comes over. I'm praying with them. His wife comes over. Daughter comes over. We're praying. It's like, Lord, we want you to make great provision for this project because we know that you want this church to be planted right here in this neighborhood and you're going to bless them. And we said, Amen. And so I took Pastor Hiver and I said, Hiver, I, you know, I have no idea, but what's it going to cost to finish this? He says, $1,200. Want to take a guess how much money I have in my pocket? <laughs> exactly $1,200. Given it will be given unto you. Press down. Meet it out so you can't contain what's left over. I've never seen a guy cry like that over an amount of money that honestly doesn't even rent a decent apartment in Harbor City. Amen? Right? Do you, you understand what I'm saying? I'm not dismissing it at all. I'm just simply saying that's why we do what we do. That's why we give the way we give. See, if that was all left up to me or five people in the church or the ten most wealthy people, we're going to run out of funds really fast. But when every one of us looks at it as an obligation to test the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want to do in the world? Guess what happens? Well, I'm pretty sure this is yours. <laughs> you know? And we have this happen all the time. It happens on a regular basis. We're getting ready to fund a church, and basically it will be an orphanage in a community center on a little island in Colombia called Tierra Bomba. We're talking about, well, how much should it be, Lord? Before we even knew what it was going to cost, the board had already approved the exact amount that was needed to fund that project. We just took a guess. It was a guess from heaven, obviously. Like, well, you know, I think we can afford $3,500 a month. Can I tell you that here in the state of California, in, in Los Angeles, that one minimum wage employee with benefits 
is about $3,500 a month. You can fund a whole orphanage in Colombia for that. So we want to take care of here, and we want to take care of there. So we give, and we give generously, cheerfully, blessedly. And because of that, we have the protection of the Lord. See, we we want our money to grow. We finished this last year, and this is on the website, by the way, with less debt, more money in the bank than the church has ever had in its entire history, more missionaries in the field than the year before, which was twice as many as the year before that. Why? Because we're trying to outgive God. We're asking for him to grow what he's doing in our own lives personally and in this church. And strange thing, God is faithful. He does exactly what he says he's going to do. The Lord loves it. When I arrive, whomever you approve, I'll send them with letters and carry your gift to Jerusalem. You know, they didn't have armored cars then. They didn't have electronic wire transfer then. They didn't have ways. They didn't have a way to to transport this money safely. It was a dangerous thing to carry that much money from where they were in Corinth over to Ephesus and Ephesus to Jerusalem, a journey of at least 600 miles. All along the way, thieves. What did Malachi say? See if I will not keep the destroyer from your door. Paul knew it. The book of Acts, chapter 6, it says the congregation of the disciples selected from among them brethren, seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, that he may be put in charge of the task. That task was money. We have exactly seven members of our board. We take very seriously what the word says. We share God's perspective on these things. And we've seen God's power in these things. Paul's final word here basically says, look, if you want me to, I'll go and accompany the gift. There's an interesting thing about the whole of creation. The whole of creation gives. It gives back to to this world. It's the strangest thing. When an animal dies, it fertilizes the soil. The soil is used to make more plants. The plants feed people. The whole of creation is designed by God to give. Ice forms into water vapor, turns into rain clouds. The rain falls in the land. The land gives. The clouds give. Everything gives. I think God's actually given us a picture of of how he wants us to, to function. As we get into the middle portion of 1 John chapter 3, we're almost there. Whoever has the world's good and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? 
It's a sign we're actually saved. It's one of the surest signs. If you want assurance that you're a believer, give. Because you're responding to God's desire. You're responding to his ask for, for you to test him. And because of your faithfulness, and I want to end this way, because of your faithfulness, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people whom you will never meet until you get to heaven that you have blessed. And I guarantee you the Lord is smiling from heaven. And we want to keep doing that. God indeed loves a cheerful giver. And I'm grateful to be part of such a generous church because the Lord is honoring what's been given by using it for his glory. Amen? Would you stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Some of the pastors are going to come up. They'll be available to pray with you. But I want to remind you as you as you think on your own life, don't be, if I said something that bums you out, don't be bummed. Maybe challenged. Maybe God's speaking into your life and maybe you're one of those people that needs to set aside your preconception about what church is. But I can tell you this, if you do what God says, you're going to be blessed beyond measure. I don't know about you, I like being blessed. I'd much rather, I'd rather be blessed than cursed, amen? That's kind of an easy thing to see. God says if you want to be blessed... And try and outgive him. Father, thank you. Thank you for the generosity of this body of believers that allows us to do so much all over the world. And Lord, we truly believe it's an act of worship as we give to you, as we purpose in our hearts to be generous. And Lord, not out of obligation, but because you are good and we want to tell the world about your goodness. Pray that you'd help us, Lord, if we're holding back. God, if there are financial things that have come our way because we've been stingy, Lord, help us to peel our fingers off the stuff you've entrusted to us and and just give freely. Lord, you're worthy of that trust, of that test, and we want to pass it. And so, God, we ask that you would bless us and continue to use us, grow the ministries that we have all over the world. Lord, for your kingdom and for your glory. We honor you, we bless you, we praise you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.